think you can turn the gain down a little bit on this, you know, bro. Might get a little bit excited. Um, it's good to see everyone, and it's good to be back in a place of grace. Um, thankful for God's word, which is consistent in every season. And um, just for his faithfulness towards us, the unchanging God, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Um, particularly relevant to us on Remembrance Sunday, as we um, remember those who have fought for our freedom and recognize that um, even as they have done so, um, they haven't done that which is greater than the work of Christ who fought for our freedom. Um, having resisted sin even unto death, the death of the cross, in order that we might be free in him. And so we give thanks um, as we remember. And, you know, we also are, in our time of remembrance, um, just reminded of how injustice and oppression uh, are such um, heinous experiences for any humans to go through. And um, we recognize that in life, you know, people experience those things for different reasons, and yet whatever the reason, it causes us to lament. It causes our heart to groan, regardless of who's the victim and who's the perpetrator. And, um, you know, in this, we look forward to our heavenly kingdom, when there will be no more pain and no more suffering, no more oppression, no more injustice, you know, no more isms and schisms but we'll be at peace and in total bliss and so this is why the gospel is so necessary um, not just for eternity not just for the hereafter but also for the here and now because where do people find hope apart from the gospel you know when we look at life as, as we know it right now where do we find hope when we Look at history, where do we find hope? You know, as Pastor Rob said, the only thing we don't learn from history is that we don't learn from history. And there are so many experiences that we go through that people have been through, and it's as if we just can't learn the lesson. And yet, nonetheless, we desire better. We need better. And that very desire, just the presence of that very desire testifies to the eternity of God that has been sown in our hearts, as it says in Ecclesiastes. That God has sown eternity in our hearts that we might reach and stretch and press after him. And so as we look to the gospel, and we look to the gospel in 3D, <laughs> we do so with a, a sense of complete expectation, expectation that actually the Lord will meet us in the here and now, and yet also the Lord has so much more for us in the hereafter. So, as we turn our attention to our text, Titus chapter 2, um, last week I 
um, undertook the ambitious plan of trying to do verses 1 to 10. And um, <laughs> it, just, it just didn't happen. It wasn't going to happen. And so we're going to um, pick up the remainder today of verses 6 to 10 and um, see how the Lord might speak to us. So let's um, pray and turn our attention to our text. In fact, actually, let me read the text. I'll read from verse 1 just for the sake of continuity, and then we'll pray. But as, as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. And so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Slaves are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior. Father, we thank you because you are so unselfish in your nature that not only would you save us, but you would then use us as a witness, testifying of your love and your grace to others. And yet you have purposed to do that in ways that are not just counter-cultural, but they're counterintuitive. They are not natural to us as humans. We are inclined to sin because such is our nature. We are inclined to do wrong. We are inclined to live immorally. We are inclined to live shamefully because that is the ultimate fruit of self-glorification. And self-glorification is the seat of sin. And yet, Lord, you have brought us to a place where we have bowed the knee before your glory and recognized the lordship of your son. And Father, you have purposed that through us as your people, we would again be a light to the nations. And so this is our prayer, Lord, that you would help us, that you would help us to know who we are in you, that we might have a right revelation and understanding of who we are in relationship with you, in order that you might reveal yourself through us to those who don't know you. Help us, Lord, because we live in an all-consuming culture that invades our space. In fact, it invades our minds at every level, at every turn. And yet, Lord, the internal presence of your spirit is greater. He that is in us is greater than he that is in the world. Thank you, Lord, for this great and precious promise. Help us to... Listen and be attentive to you as you speak to us through your word. And I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. And so if you're just joining us at this point in the series, a quick recap. Um, the Apostle Paul's writing to Titus in order to send him to Crete, the Greek island, 
to um, go and set things in order there because they had an influx of um, leaders who were not just spurious, they were corrupt. And so he had instructed Titus to appoint new heads or new leaders um, to clarify what the new household of God ought to look like. What, what do the people of God look like as a church family and as um, family microcosms um, that make up the church family? And furthermore, what does, what does humanity look like having been impacted and encountered the gospel? And so in this, um, we see the kind of basic overview. And, you know, it's important that we keep in mind as we go through the, the, the ways in which the, the Crete culture was under the influence of their heritage and history. And so Cretan people were described as lazy, greedy liars, that they were the distinct cultural characteristics that defined them. Obviously not good ones. They believed in Zeus, Zeus, who was regarded as being a liar and a womanizer, and as such was extolled. He was lauded. I mean, he was worshipped, even as a liar and a womanizer. So you can imagine, if that is the God they're worshipping, how that impacted their culture. And so, as Titus is speaking to the Cretan people, there's this clear sense of a need for an explanation of what the gospel looks like in practice. They had received the gospel just like us. And yet what that looked like in practice needed to be clarified, as it, I'm sure, does need to be for us too. Because there are so many situations, even as we discussed, oh gosh, community group. Woo! Community group family. Listen. Oh my gosh. We had, I say it every week, innit? <laughs> And the thing is, you still don't believe me because mostly you're not there. <laughs> Louisa, am I lying? Listen, community group on Thursday. As we began to unpack some of these issues here, practically, what does it look like for us? How do these older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers? I mean, we could, we could just stop there and revisit that and still preach more and, and not cover the same old ground. And yet, young women are to be taught and trained to love their husbands and children. I mean, it seems almost crazy that a young woman needs to be taught how to love her husband. And, or not even taught how to, but taught to love their husbands and children. To be self-controlled, pure. Working at home. I mean, we had questions that we didn't even touch concerning this. Because, you know, we, we, we really kind of, <laughs> we peeled back some layers on this as it relates to our lives. And it just, again, further kind of testifies to the fact that there is so much that we really need to explore as to what the gospel looks like in practice. You know, what does it look like when you're coming into a blended family and you're working through those challenges? What does it look like when you're working out, you know, what submission looks like in the home and who's the breadwinner and who's not, etc., etc.? There's so much misinformation. 
we too need that help to understand what this looks like in practice. And so we turn our attention now to young men in verse 6. <clears throat> and it seems almost as if Paul has kind of pulled his punch with the young men. Like he, he kind of had, had much to say to the older women and to the older men and even to the younger women. But then to the younger men, it seems as though he just says to be self-controlled, full stop. Now, there's no doubt that self-control would have been an issue. And we talked about self-control as being not just that which we don't do, as in being disciplined and refraining from doing um, improper and unethical things. But also, it relates to those things that we ought to do that we don't do. Expressions of compassion. Personal diligence and faithfulness. All of these things actually come within the realm of self-control. But Paul hasn't pulled a punch. He hasn't let off the young men. Because Titus himself was a young man. And so, as he now kind of addresses Titus, he's addressing Titus as in the context of younger men. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself. You're a younger man. So, you are to be an example of what younger men are to look like. It's wonderful to see the um, lack of ageism in the Bible. Paul says to Timothy, let no one despise your youth. You know, I came to faith at 14, almost 15. Um, the first few years, I, I would like to say, were my wilderness years because I wasn't focused. And no, I wasn't out there like still doing madness because I was never doing madness before anyway. I grew up in church. I was a coward. So... <laughs> In all, uh, in all honesty. So I was never like, you know, I never had like a whole rucksack fools of sins of immorality on my, on my back. Um, I, sh I knew I was a sinner in need of grace. And yet, coming to faith at, at 14, I was still subject to peer pressure. I was getting ready to go into my last year of secondary school. And, you know, you kind of get into the, the, the top of the pile in school. And so you're kind of making a mark. And I was one of the few black guys in my school, which sort of afforded me some kind of credibility. Um, maybe because I was just mysterious. <laughs> and it was the fear of the unknown. But, and because I was quite a, 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 a heavy set individual within the context of my school. So I had certain favor in school. So I wasn't really serious. I wasn't focused. I was busy enjoying this kind of season of favor and influence. But around the time when I left school and I started to go to college, it felt like the Lord really arrested my heart. And I really began to become serious about the things of God. I began to take the Bible seriously. I, you know what? This isn't just something I can just pull out choice verses at random and quote. But I kind of need to know a bit more about what it's saying. I began to take seriously the fact that actually the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity who comes to reside in his people and empower us for the glory of God. And, I, and it just began to, like, really, I used to just dwell on this, that actually the spirit of the Most High God lives in me. What difference ought that to make in my life? 
And I was under conviction and yet also encouraged to, and curious to explore from Scripture what this looked like. And so even in that season, I realized that there was a call upon my life as a Christian. Not even like, oh, I had a revelation that I was called to ministry. And even at that age, 16, 17, I knew that God was going to raise me up in ministry. No, 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 no. I just knew that I was a Christian and that Christianity was a calling. It wasn't just a, some kind of social, you know, ideology or just another way of, it was a calling actually, you're called into relationship with God. And with that, I realized that actually, there's, there's a certain expectation that I am obligated to, not unwillingly, but there's an expectation, a, a, a right and righteous and genuine expectation that I'm to fulfill, even if I don't see it being fulfilled in the lives of adults around me. That contributed to my wife and I getting married as we turned 20. And even in those days, that was countercultural. <laughs> we're shocked. Yeah. So I had just turned 20. My birthday was in July. And we got married on my wife's birthday. <laughs> and I've, s I've since learned that I am not God's gift to... <laughs> at all <laughs> and um but you know it, it it was it baffled people that as 20 year olds we would be not just even suggesting but purposing to walk the aisle stand before god and get married countercultural but that was motivated by my commitment to christ not by the example of others around me and so we see here Titus is being called to be an example. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned. And so Titus, as a young minister of the gospel, was to be something of, dare I use the word, an iconic Christian. Or a picture of what a typical Christian ought to look like. When we look at all of these qualities that are being communicated here, whether it be to older or younger, male or female, these are qualities that should, that should be present within the life of all believers. These should be the manifestations of God's spirit at work in us, making us more like Jesus. And so just think about that regarding yourself for a moment. Somebody once said, if it was a crime to be a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? If it were a crime to be a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? Would they have to go through your life with a fine tooth comb to work out that you're a believer? Would your colleagues at work be able to say, oh yeah, I know one Christian, it's such... Or like, hmm, I don't know, you know. <laughs> Maybe. They kind of say some things that make me think sometimes, but nah, not really. It's a challenging thought. And so 
we're supposed to be individuals that the world would look at and say, guilty as charged. You're one of those ones, the followers of Christ, as they did the early Christians and the early church. May the Lord help us to not allow the testimony and witness of God to be diluted in our generation. Be a model of good works. I remember when I was in my um, early years at church, and especially when I kind of began to venture out into other churches, I grew up in church in Brixton, and then when my dad came to faith, he started taking me to a Baptist church in Peckham. And so when I started going there, I began to get exposed to just other Christians. And I do remember at that time that there was this kind of notion still, it was kind of dwindling, but there was this notion that Christians are do-gooders. And that was almost like the definition of a Christian. You're a do-gooder, you're one of those do-gooder Christians, right? And so there's this sense that actually we are known for being people who are of good works. Now, Despite the fact that we have a culture that stigmatizes that. Oh, you're a goody two-shoes. And it's seen in a real kind of negative light. That's something that we ought to aspire to. Being recognized as people who are doers of good works. That we would model that to one another and to our community. So when everyone else is just casting their rubbish everywhere on the street... We're making sure that ours go in the wheelie bin. When everyone else is wandering in late to work and leaving early and ducking the boss's gaze, we're people who endeavor to be faithful and have integrity. And even if we need to leave early, we at least get permission. And so there are so many ways in which we have opportunity to exemplify Christ as it relates to concern for our neighbors. One of the sisters at um, community group a few weeks ago talked about the fact that as she, she um, came out of Little Lambs, she came across this young lady who was in distress. And um, long story short, she was able to show compassion and offer help. The young lady was in a very difficult relationship and just being able to be present and show compassion made such a difference in that individual's life. Even to the extent that the Lord caused them to meet again on a few other occasions after that. And somewhat of a recognition and a relationship even was formed through that initial willingness to show concern and compassion when the sister really didn't have to. She, in fact, she had enough on her plate at the time. May we as a people be known as a model of good works. And it says, in your teaching, show integrity. <clears throat> and this is so relevant as we consider what Bertram shared with us with regards to the corrupt teachers and how we see that proliferated and even popularized in our day and age. What does it mean to have integrity in your teaching? Well, fundamentally, it just means to be true to the text. 
Let's not abuse the text. Let's, let's not manipulate the text to say what we want it to say. But let's endeavor to be true to the text, taking the text in its context. They say that a text out of context is merely a con. <laughs> and so be true to the text and be true to the revelation of God. <clears throat> and as Christians, it's important that we too in our daily lives are endeavoring to filter all things through the word of God. Been doing some um, Christian Union sessions in Asks and um, there's a brother there from um, another church, from Grace Church over in Brockley, from Ray Brown's church, our brother. And um, he's been this past half term in with us and supporting. And it's just been encouraging to see how whenever he is addressing anything to, from Scripture, he has the Bible in hand with the page open. Communicating from the text. Even if, it, you know, we had a session, we called it Gorilla Christian. And they could basically just come and ask whatever questions they want. Not Gorilla Christian. <laughs> Gorilla Christian, you know. And, um, you know, even in that, when you're being fired questions at random, it's a, it's a necessary and beautiful thing to be able to just anchor every response in Scripture. Because opinions don't matter. They say opinions are like noses. Everybody has one. And some of them don't smell so good. <laughs> but ultimately, all we can leave people is, is with the word of God. Because it's the eternal word that's everlasting. Likewise, as a young man, young men are to be of dignity and sound speech. And we talked about dignity. And despite the fact that people may have treated us like we are worthless, we're able to look in the face of Christ and recognize that we are valued by God. You are valued by God created in his image and likeness but not just that we can't we don't even need to stop there that would be enough and yet so loved by God that God would send his son to die in your place to save you from your sin and so it's not in our great ability to speak to sing to dance to you know as a mathematician and our academic excellence, these are the things don't, that don't, that those things don't give us ultimate dignity because they are transient. They're cursory. When people change their standards of, of values, it's easy for us to get left behind. There was a time in history, <laughs> although it might seem hard to believe, when Creatives weren't really rated very highly. I mean, some of you still, you know that in your family. You tell your family that you want to go and do a creative job, and they're like, what's that? <laughs> what happened to law and medicine and teaching and finance? Like, don't come and tell me about photographer. What do you mean by photographer? That's a hobby. <laughs> And that's, that's a reflection of old school values where actually 
academics and professionals were most highly esteemed. And yet we live in a culture now where actually who are some of the most popular and renowned people? Entertainers or people that are just famous for being famous. They don't actually do anything to contribute anything to the world and society, and of, but they're just famous for being famous. And yet they're most highly esteemed. Values change. But the worth that is conveyed by God doesn't. And so it's in that that we're to find our worth. <clears throat> Sound speech. Now, this is interesting because there have been many in recent times who have, you know, said, well, sound speech, what is sound speech? Because it's all relative. Ah. It's all relative. Sound speech, relative. Like, you know, we talk about swearing. Well, what is swearing? The Bible doesn't define that which is swearing. And so who's to say that the words that we count as swearing are swearing? I mean, I remember the first time we went on a missions trip to Germany. We went to, to Munich. Um, and we were going to do some music over there. It was myself, Pastor Rob, and a group of others. And um, this mission trip, they were doing a basketball camp. Um, and so they had young people from the community. And we were going to kind of do music ministry during the context of that. And I remember being there in Munich. And they had the beer festival and um, Oktoberfest in, in Munich. And so that's where they just like pint jars that are real pint jars. Handles and everything, just backing it down. This is the believers. <laughs> no, they didn't get drunk. They didn't get drunk. And yet, there were certain words that they would use that we were just like, huh? Did I just hear them say the S word? And I'm, and I'm looking like this. And we're trying to hold it down like, we don't want to make a, a like, but just casually in common conversation. And it became clearly apparent that for them, that wasn't classed as swearing. It was just a, another adjective. <laughs> what they were describing, I don't know, but it was just another adjective. <laughs> but for us, obviously, to our ears, it was offensive, like, whoa. Now, we didn't, like, take them aside and be like, you know what, sister. Sister, you know. <laughs> you can't really say that, you know. It's very offensive. Da, 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 da. No, we, it wasn't that. We didn't in, in, endeavor to impose our values on them. But at the same time, we didn't come back and then just start using the S word freely, like. <laughs> because context is everything. And so... There is a sense in which sound speech is going to be that which is in accordance with Scripture. But even in those areas that are gray areas, let's not pretend. You know, people try and um, make excuses to entertain what is obviously vulgarity. Because they want to be edgy. Or maybe they want to be relevant to the culture and show that Christians ain't boring. We're cool as well. So we drop the S word and... Whatever. Is that so necessary? Really? Is, is the Lord relying on our relevance and coolness in order for people to be reached with the gospel? Actually, there is greater witness in being different. Being unlike the culture. 
standing out in ways that are distinct. And so let's not make excuses and pretend that certain words are not understood commonly within our context to be profanity, expletives, or vulgar. In Ephesians 4, it talks about the fact that we ought to let our words be seasoned with grace. And so even some of the words that we use, it's not even just the word that we use, but the attitude that we use it in. Is it seasoned with grace? You know, sometimes we can be prone to exchange a word because we don't want to swear. And yet we're saying the exchanged word in the same attitude and with the same force that we would. And it's... And you know what you're wanting to say, but trying to avoid to say, because it's offensive to the ear. And we can hear and feel what it is that you've said, and we know what you meant to say, yeah. But it's plausible, because it's not the word. So I'm just saying, let's be sensitive. Let's delight in being different and being distinct. Because what does it say? Sound speech that cannot be condemned. The reality is that even if they don't say it to our face, the unbeliever will turn around. And even amongst themselves will say, you hear that? They're supposed to be a Christian. Well, they laugh with you. No, yeah, like you're really cool. And then they'll kind of go around and be like, you know what? I didn't know Christians swear, you know. testimony gets that diluted a little more. And so that any opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. And that's the, the greater force. That's the, the more important issue. Being a Christian in and of itself is enough for people to say about us. Let's not give them more to say about us. Blessed are you when you are persecuted for righteousness sake. Sometimes we act the fool and then claim that we're being persecuted for righteousness sake. Moving on in social order. Slaves are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. So, firstly, I'm grateful for the fact that the ESV has translated this slaves. Because that is the sense of the word. Um, some translations put servants. And they put servants more out of a desire not to be um, culturally offensive, knowing the force of the word slave in our Western, current Western culture. But the word is slave. And so this we recognize and have said before and spoken a little bit about recently is is often a bone of contention for many because it seems here that the bible is endorsing slavery 
In fact, it almost suggests that slaves are to just lie back and take their oppression. Is this what the Bible's saying? Now, most of you would have been familiar with the fact that we've kind of touched on this and the fact that um, slavery in Scripture is not the same as slavery as we understand it in more recent history. And so when we consider the transatlantic slave trade and we consider the, the dark and oppressive, torturous nature of that experience, we see that it's not the same. One of the things that causes it to be viewed as different and regarded as different is because in the days of scripture, slaves were not determined by race. It, it was not about people's race or ethnic identity that would cause them to be in the position of slavery. We see that slaves became slaves for a few reasons. One of them being they were in debt and sold themselves into slavery in order to earn um, through their work, being in an environment where they're going to be provided for. There were those who would be um, subject to criminal proceedings, and that was their way of making reparation for their wrong. There were some who were um, prisoners of war. And so, through military aggression, had been captured and were now in slavery. Even under the Roman system of slavery, which this is speaking into, there was often opportunity for people to buy their way out of slavery. Or, if they went into the gladiator's ring, you remember gladiator? Maximus Aurelius, commander of the armies of the north. They could fight their way out of slavery if they won in the ring. And yet, the transatlantic slave trade was very different. Now, I had hoped to show you something, but it's going to come up too small on the screen. So I'm going to read it. When we consider the transatlantic slave trade, it was based fundamentally on the dehumanization of certain um, quote-unquote races. Before the 1600s, the term race wasn't even really used, apart from as just a common category. So, there is a particular race of servants as a category of servants, as a type. It was never used in terms of ethnic distinction. It wasn't until the 1600s that it became used as a term to distinguish and segregate people of color. This was during the English colonization, colonization movement. The whole idea is a manufactured concept. 
race. The idea that the human species is divided into distinct groups on the basis of inherited physical and behavioral differences. Genetic studies in the late 20th century refuted the existence of biogenetically different races. So there is no genetic basis, there is no biological basis to this distinction that we call different races. Scholars now argue that races are cultural in, in interventions reflecting specific attitudes and beliefs that were imposed on different populations in the wake of Western European conquests. You know what, I'll tell you something, right? Looking into this has absolutely blown my mind. And the reality is that you don't have to go far to get this information, which is all factual, historical, sociological, anthropological, scientific. It's all factual, yeah? Let me ask you this question for those of you who are old enough to remember. Can you remember a time before the internet? <laughs> or maybe even when dial-up was 14, 14K. <laughs> yeah. So go, even going on the internet in those days wasn't even easy. And it took like 10 minutes to load one page. There was no Wikipedia, there was no YouTube, there wasn't even any Google. Yeah? Some of you are thinking, is there such, could there ever be such a world? It sounds like a horrible place. <laughs> now let me ask you, yeah? If there was a common source of general information, world information, that might be accessible to the home, what format would that likely to be in? Books? Thank you very much, Faye. The Britannia Collection, Encyclopedia Britannia. And you know that, that collection of hardback, because it only ever came in hardback, right? Couldn't even get the cheaper version. Cost money. You're talking about payment plans. And it'd be like 40 volumes. Shelf in the front room is just bowing <laughs> under the weight. <laughs> you imagine all of that at the click of a button at our disposal. So Encyclopedia Britannia was the kind of go-to resource that would have been the kind of accessible, if not affordable, source of just kind of general information on the world and life. And it was well-researched by academics, put together in, 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 in um, kind of accessible terms, and was um, sometimes in people's homes, at least if not in the library. You go there and you look it up. Encyclopedias. So this information that I'm giving you is research that has been compiled together in the Encyclopedia Britannica online. Because they had to keep with the times, right? They're saying that, look, the whole idea that people are dis divided into distinct groups on the basis of inherited physical and behavioral differences 
is a myth. It is a cultural intervention slash invention as a re result of specific attitudes and beliefs that were imposed on different populations in the wake of European conquests. So in order to define and motivate and validate this conquest of world colonization, and there isn't a continent where the, 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 the British haven't colonized any country. There isn't a continent. They, they, they used to say that the sun never sets on the British Empire. And it was true. This was the conquest of going into countries and taking their land and capturing their people and subduing them. So, let me just read a little more, you because I, it's, it, it's easier for me to just read it to you and for you to hear it for yourself. It's absolutely mind-blowing. The modern meaning of the term race, with reference to humans, began to emerge in the 17th century. At no point from the first rudimentary attempts at classifying human populations in the 17th and 18th centuries to the present day, have scientists agreed on the number of races of humankind. The features to be used in identification of races, or even the meaning of race itself. They haven't even agreed since the first introduction of the term. Although most people continue to think of races as physically distinct populations, scientific advances in the 20th century demonstrated that human physical variations do not fit a racial model. So this idea that you know, the black people are a certain race, and Indians and Asians are a certain race, and white Europeans are a certain race, and maybe um, what they might call Mongol, um, Asian in terms of Chinese and that are a certain race and where and where fundamentally different is a lie. The genetic difference between any two humans is less than one percent. I mean hair color, hair texture, eye color, skin color lip thickness, nose width, breath. It all accounts for less than 1% of the differences between us. Moreover, geographically wide, widely spread separated populations vary from one another in only about 6 to 8% of their genes. Because of the overlapping of traits that bear no relationship to one another, such as skin color and hair texture, and the inability of scientists to cluster peoples into discrete racial packages, modern researchers have concluded that the concept of race has no biological validity.
prompted by advances in other fields, particularly anthropology, which is the study of people groups, and history, scholars began to examine race as a social and cultural rather than biological phenomenon and have determined that race is a social invention of relatively recent origin. It derives its most pertinent characteristics from the social consequences of its classificatory, classificatory use. So it becomes relevant based on the way that it's used. That's what it's basically saying there. The idea of race began to evolve in the late 17th century after the beginning of European exploration and colonization as a folk ideology about human differences associated with the different populations, Europeans, Amerindians, and Africans, brought together in the new world. In the 19th century, after the abolition of slavery, the ideology fully emerged as a new mechanism of social division and stratification. Now, the use of this term and this ideology comes to the fore in the 1600s at a time when white Europeans are going to around the globe colonize nations and as they're doing so, they're using it as a justification to oppress people. It's interesting because initially, it wasn't just on the basis of color, but there was also a, a class distinction. So some of these ideas are rooted in what's called the great chain of being. And in it, it suggests that God is infinitely perfect, and then all other beings kind of are the overflow of that and lack perfection in some way. And according to this ideology of race, they had kind of built on that notion and said, well, white people are the top of human race. In fact, there were even those who would say that white people were a different species. And then people of color were in descending order underneath that. Therefore, justifying their notion of um, uh, a lack of value. This was also true of those who were in poverty, who were regarded as less intellectual, less capable, and actually a lesser being. And so examples of this are in the Indian caste system. And if you have any familiarity with that, you will understand that the caste system is kind of like a class system, which is quite complicated, but it suggests that those who are of menial work are of lower value um, and lower worth in the community, and those who are of um, more advanced work and learning, they are not just uh, of another class, but they are inherently better and more valuable, inherently, not just because of what they do. There wasn't this sense that somebody could come up from a, you know, a road sweeper 
and study and become a financier or a business owner. You know your place. This is our place because we inherently within us are of a better quality of human than they are. From its inception, racial ideology accorded inferior social status to people of African or Native American ancestry. The ideology was institutionalized in law and social practice, and social mechanisms were developed for enforcing the status difference. Now, this becomes the fundamental definition and motivation for the subduing of people of color around the world. And this, in and of itself, sets the transatlantic slave trade as different from any other form of slavery in human history. I mean, the Jews, when they were in Egypt, were not enslaved because they were a, a different ethnicity. The Bible tells us that the fear was that, that um, Pharaoh was concerned that they would grow to overcome and overpower them as a nation and so subjected them to hard labor. So the oppression, the motivation for the oppression was more political and economic. It wasn't racial. Time doesn't permit to go into all of the detail, except to say, when we see the scripture speak of slaves, it's not speaking of the same type of slavery, where people are dehumanized based on the color of their skin. Literally, something as superficial as the color of their skin. In fact, this concept is a modern concept, a modern invention. And it is definitely not something that is endorsed by scripture in the way that people had tried to. There was even a theory that was circulating that black people were created by God. This is amongst people who believed in God. That black people were created by God as a, at a different time to Adam and Eve, who were the progenitors of the, the white race. And then, you know, so where did Cain get his wife? Okay, so God must have created another people that we're not told of from whom he went and got a wife. And all kinds of abuses of the text. And yet we see in the UK, the unity of the faith resulting in the abolition of slavery. Many people are familiar with these names, those who have actually looked into the matter of slavery. We see abolitionists William Wilberforce and Granville Sharp. They were parliamentary voices, influential in bringing about the bill that resulted in the abolition of slavery. What we don't often hear about is another group who were working in partnership with them, known as the Sons of Africa. And the two most notable members of that group 
were Aluada Equianu and Otoba Koguano. And these men were freed slaves. They had experienced slavery. And yet as Christian men, they found a partnership, common ground, as one in Christ with Wilberforce and Sharp. And as these, these men were noted because their voice was amplified by the fact that they wrote their own autobiographies. And were, Equiano was regarded as the, the first slave autobiography that had been written. And so as they committed their experience to writing, to literature, their voice was amplified in Parliament through the partnership of Wilberforce and Sharp. And so here we see a picture of what was common even before the, those centuries of the transatlantic slave trade, where people based on strength of character were able to rise and be regarded. And yet even in the face of such discrimination, not even just uncharacteristic discrimination, but unfounded discrimination, these four men were able to find solidarity, camaraderie, and partnership as they effectively and successfully brought about the abolition of the transatlantic slave trade here in the UK. And so we thank God that even in this testimony, we see the power of partnership. We see the unity of the faith being manifest in powerful ways, in ways that change the whole regime. Because in Christ, they were able to recognize that they are one. And so, let's not mistake the slavery of Scripture for the transatlantic slave trade. Because it bears no hallmarks, no, nothing in common with it whatsoever. In the time of Scripture, they had indentured servitude. And the word indentured basically means a binding agreement. And so we understand that to be more like an employment contract. And so this term would have included those who were in servitude by agreement, who had submitted themselves by agreement. Some people and many were actually servants or slaves by choice because their masters were so good to them, they would be regarded as a bond servant where they committed themselves on an ongoing basis to be their servant, to be their slave, because their masters were so good to them. And so as Paul was speaking into this existing context, he wasn't endorsing it, but he was clarifying how they ought to function and how they ought to behave in that sense. Be submissive. Be well-pleasing. Not argumentative. Not pilfering, but showing all good faith. 
Now, if we think about this in terms of our employment situations, <laughs> I remember when I used to do pizza delivery, and we were, we were permitted to have a certain amount of food each shift, whether it's you know, a pizza, a small pizza, and a, a garlic bread, and so on. And I remember times when I almost said righteously, it wasn't righteous, when I, when I really abused that. Now, that would be considered pilfered. But that's the kind of thing that I shouldn't have been doing. After having had a pizza on my shift, then leaving with a large pizza to go home with. <laughs> and yet, it says showing all good faith. And this for us is a, a word of encouragement. God is faithful. God knows your situation. However difficult it is in your workplace, however even unfair it might be, and you might feel that you're entitled to take things because they're not treating you right. <laughs> Nonetheless, have faith in the Lord. He knows your situation and he's got your back. He's going to take care of you. He's going to pro prosper you. So don't take matters into your own hand. There's no doubt that you can state your case to your boss. But don't be known as one who's just rowdy. Let us be well-pleasing to the Lord. Because if we're endeavoring to be well-pleasing to the Lord, then, as it says in Proverbs 16, verse 7, when a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. If you're pleasing God, there's, you can't, you know what, it's hard for people to fault you. And so may we show all good faith so that in everything we may adorn, that we might wear it like name brand garments, the doctrine of God our Savior. And so, as you consider Paul's words here, just consider for a moment, what do you need to address? What do you need to address? In what way have you got a self-control issue? It might be an anger issue. It could be a drink issue. Could even be a health issue. In what ways have you got to consider your testimony and your example of good works? In what way do you feel less than? You know, feeling less than can easily lead us to have a victim mentality where we just see ourselves as the victim in life and everybody's wronged us and as a result, we're entitled to whatever, and it can lead to all kinds of sinful attitudes. You're not a victim. You're a child of the Most High. So as I invite the team to come, and I ask us to stand.
let's just reflect on the greatness of our God. Because as challenging and as confronting as this might be, we rejoice in the fact that Jesus himself, he, he was a man of this era. Jesus himself was a first century Jew. And he knew what it was to submit himself to the authorities of the land. Even to the corrupt religious authorities. He knew what it was to have his good spoken evil of. To be persecuted as an understatement for righteousness sake. And yet he done all this without sin. And in doing so, he clearly made up for our lack, for our failings. We don't have to leave here feeling condemned. We don't have to leave here with our chin down on the floor and our knuckles scraping the dirt, feeling like, woe is me. Because Jesus is the lifter of your head. He has done what we could not do. In order that through him, we might be made right with God. And find ourselves in a place where it's no longer us that lives, but it's him that lives in us. And so these are not unrealistic expectations. Because the risen conquering king is alive and present in those who believe. Do you believe today? Have you come to God and received forgiveness? Have you come and received newness of life? If not, you have the opportunity to submit your life to the Lord. And if you have, is it evident? Is there enough evidence to convict you? if it were against the Lord, to be a Christian. Father God, we come before you and we recognize that we stand daily in need of you because in ourselves we are weak and yet in you we are strong. And Lord, I really do pray that you would help us, help us to recognize that you are greater than it all. You're greater than our sin. You're greater than our failings. You're even greater than the abuses that we've experienced and the ways in which we've been treated as worthless, whether that be by family or friends or employers or whoever, Lord. You're greater than it all. Lord, you're even greater than the abuses of the transatlantic slave trade. And regardless of what was done in your name, you disassociate yourself from such sinful and unrighteous categorization of people. We thank you that you have made one people from all nations and that we are one body and one family. Equally sinful and yet equally made righteous through Christ Jesus. 
Thank you, Heavenly Father. You are good. Your mercy endures forever. Join us next time for more of God's truth to transform your reality.